politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios. Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live burying our heads. This technology is here. We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's one big thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. I see the big silver lining, Zach, as this was a choice against toxicity. And I think that is a really refreshing element. When you have a functioning system that even the election deniers accepted the results of, and that's happened, I think, pretty much in every case I've seen. I haven't seen anyone contest the outcome or process of yet. That's probably the healthiest element and difference of this, because it steals the possibility of Trump using that line on election denying as we approach 2024. What could go right? I'm Zachary Carabell, the founder of The Progress Network, and I'm joined, as always, by Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And we are in season three of What Could Go Right, our podcast that tries to look at the world through a lens of hope, through a lens of what's going right, through a lens of how are things playing out in the present that are going to lead to a better future and not just how are things playing out in the present that are going to lead to a worse one. And we are recording this particular episode just after the midterm elections in the United States, which many of us think went much better than many of us thought and anticipated. Some of that is an awfully low bar where we've all come to expect the worst. And when that doesn't materialize, it can feel like a victory. It's definitely true that if your expectations are low enough, it's a lot easier to surpass them, which is why in politics, as in business, the old adage of uh, under-promise and over-deliver is always better than the adage of over-promising and under-delivering. So in a little bit of a way, we did the same thing for the election, right? We, we collectively under-promised. And I think many people thought anything short of armed violence at the polls, rampant claims of vote fraud that were gaining traction, and like a sweep of people who somehow felt antithetical to democracy. Anything short of that was treated as a, a sigh of relief. That is probably too low a bar, but it does explain some of the post hoc reaction. We're going to talk today with one of the most acute observers of the Washington political scene. and who has been on the ground for decades and I think has a better sense of, of how politics at the national level work uh, and a sense of the individuals involved than almost anybody around these days. So Emma, tell us a bit about who we're gonna talk to today, who is also a member of the Progress Network. 
That's right. So we're going to talk to Steve Clemens, who's the founding editor-at-large of Semaphore, which is a new global news organization just launched in October 2022. Before that, he was editor-at-large of The Hill and The Atlantic, continues at both places as a contributing editor, and was the host of Al Jazeera's English Washington-based news show, The Bottom Line. If that's not enough, he also served in senior editorial roles at National Journal and Quartz, which are both part of the Atlantic Media family publications. So let's talk to Mr. Clemens. All right. So Steve, you're one of the great connectors, somebody who has the pulse on things in a way that very few people do or ever will. And we've just emerged from, I think what many people feel is a somewhat unexpected midterm election. So let's talk a little bit about that. We're, we're recording this a couple of days after the election, and by the time people are listening, there will likely be somewhat more clarity about the full, exactly how many seats were won by whom and where. So let's just add that as a, kind of a caveat to the discussion. But I guess one thing apropos Progress Network views, which is to look at things for where the silver linings are and not just pay attention to the clouds. Let's talk a little bit about what the silver linings were for the election, not about who won or lost, but kind of the nature of it. And I, I'm really interested in your thoughts about this because a couple things struck me and I think struck Emma, which she wrote about in the Waukee Go Right newsletter, were election denying, at least for this particular election, while there were occasional fulminations of voices, seemed to be ineffective and much more muted participation and enthusiasm was incredibly high. So all those, I think, are positives. What, what, what was your take on what went on? So you've mentioned some good ones. Uh, I would say that the the bet that toxicity was going to rise, that make America great again, freneticism was somehow going to you know, plant deeper roots in American politics, that Donald Trump shaking the system was going to be back and on the rise. None of that seems to have reverberated. I mean, I've been fascinated watching Republicans. And let's talk about a lot of people are claiming this is Democrats winning. But two of the governors that Donald Trump was harassing most started with, you know, Ron DeSantis. DeSantis did very, very well. And that's going to position him in a very different way. Now, a lot of people may not like DeSantis, but he's got a kind of you know, dimension to him uh, and a feel for the ground, which is just very different than Trump's. But the more important one is Brian Kemp. I mean, Donald Trump threw all of his weight against Brian Kemp in Georgia, and Brian Kemp prevailed there. And I sort of look at that. Interesting. I've been following really closely someone I know well, Adam Frisch, in Colorado's third district, running against Lauren Boebert. And he he said this is a you know was a Trump plus fifteen district. She was a very loud person. He was offended by her. He saw a lot of Republicans were embarrassed by her. And so he threw his hat in the ring. And at the time of the hour talking right now, they are neck and neck, 64 votes apart. And this may be something that will have to go to a recount. We don't know how it will come out, given the ballots that still need to be um, counted. But I see the big silver lining, Zach, as this was a choice against toxicity. And I think that is a really refreshing element. And I think there's another side to it. And it's not that the Democrats won there. I think the Democrats held their own in a historic election. President Biden clearly did better 
than previous Democratic presidents in their midterm races, certainly better than Obama, certainly better than Bill Clinton. And so that can you know go in the marker. But I think that the that the broad side of it is that this notion of getting things done again for the American people, whatever, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, you're a pragmatic, that largely won. And I haven't seen that for a while. That's not where our, our eyes have been focused. Maybe former President Trump can call up the uh, Colorado Secretary of State or whoever's in charge of elections and say, I just need 64 votes. It's a much smaller ask <laughs> than uh, what was true for, for Rasberger in, in, in Georgia in 2020. So, I mean, I think, you know, even though, even though his cloud is less, it's much easier to find 64 votes. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, he, you know, when I, I had an interview in Semaphore with Adam Frisch, and he called Lauren Boebert the queen of angertainment. And this angertainment concept was something that another uh, member of Congress had used. And I was with Paul Ryan recently, uh, the former Speaker of the House, who said publicly that too many of his, you know, now former GOP colleagues are performative and not focused on policy. And I think that got a rollback. Marjorie Taylor Greene still won, but you know, you had other people that didn't win in this race that were into getting famous from this as opposed to, you know, doing what I think would would be orient themselves towards public policy challenges and deficits that need a response. And I actually think that it was good again. And I tell you, I I wrote a piece recently for an international audience. And I said, you know what? A lot of things that go into democracy and what democracy is, the courts, it's the right to minority, it's institutions and checks and balances. But I said, it's also not knowing the outcome of an election before it started. And that's true in this case. And we sort of reclaimed that. Not many people knew the outcome of this. And that was delightful. It was a very unexpected midterm outcome. I think what was unexpected for me as well. You know, Zachary mentioned the What Could Go Right newsletter. Usually when I write that newsletter, it's like I have a positive tone. Everyone else has a completely negative tone and I start to feel a little crazy. This week I had a positive tone and it matched everyone else's positive tone. So I actually have a the, the opposite of Zachary's question, which uh, Charlie Sykes wrote this morning. Warnings against irrational exuberance are in order. And I'm wondering if, if you think that's true, that I I feel like there's this feeling, oh, we've seen the back of the toxicity. We've seen the back of the, you know, uh, Stop the Seal style campaigns. Is it okay right now to take a large breath of relief like that is on the way out for sure? Or are we are we going to do better for ourselves by, you know, keeping an eye on it? It's a really interesting question. And I, and I don't know an easy way to answer it responsibly. I will tell you that a lot of the toxicity, but not all of it, is wrapped up in the cult of Donald Trump. And to see the Wall Street Journal editorial page come out and say he's a multiple loser and to see other leading conservative tilting publications call Donald Trump out right now, I I think is an interesting feature in this political landscape right now. And I don't know where it will come out. But I think the big debate is, is that toxicity driven by someone like Trump or is it a manifestation of other issues? And and I think that it is a manifestation of other issues. I think that there is a lot, you know, uh, Zach Carabell and I've been talking for years about foreign policy and other things. You can't ever underestimate the power of what is driven from someone's sense of being demeaned or humiliated or a nation feeling humiliated. I interviewed uh, then Vice President Biden in 2016 when Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump were running. And he said the problem with the Democratic Party is it had become a party of snobs. And 
I found that a really dramatic on the record statement. I put it in the Atlantic and you sometimes wonder, wow, what was that about? And so part of that is an ongoing divide inside the Democratic Party. You know, it sort of sounds silly that you've got kind of a liberal elite Northeastern establishment versus, you know, former working class and lower middle class Americans particularly white Americans, um, as opposed to other broad, um, diverse Americans that had been at each other's throats over control of the party. And, and I think that that notion of where did that toxicity come from? I think it came from people feeling threatened, like they thought they were, you know, anteing up for the track of what the American middle-class social contract, you know, was supposed to be, you know, things like the 2008, 2009 financial crisis got punched them. They saw their jobs outsourced. I have family members in the Midwest of the United States who think after generations and generations of service to this country from the Revolutionary War on that they fought the Cold War and China won. These are real things for real people. And I think that that isn't going away uh, in this election. And so I think it's there. But I think what has been done is that both parties now realize that I think they realize that. We've got to finally get back to figuring out how we can give Americans a pathway to optimism. It's kind of along the lines of what your folks are doing. Optimism, feeling that the work they're doing is leading their lives and the nation in a better place, as opposed to inertia and just being attached to things or attached to processes or you know, sort of victims of circumstances. And I think that's been driving a lot of the toxicity in the country. And again, some of this will descend into, I'm sure, a lot of sort of partisan rancor and pettiness, particularly given you're going to have a divided Congress. I mean, again, we don't fully know the results of the House, but it would be very unlikely for the Republicans not to have won the House of Representatives once all the time. Well, look, I mean, I think, I mean, I just can jump in here. Like in the Senate, you know, I, I think it's public knowledge that I know Senator Joe Manchin pretty well. I actually agree with a lot of his views. Not everyone does. But guess who the Joe Manchin in the Republican majority uh, House may be with a couple? It, it, it may be Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's a very different circumstance. Right. And so you're going to get, you know, it's going to be an odd couple of years with hearings. And I think we're all going to be fairly sick of Hunter Biden's laptop by the time everything is said and done, <laughs> if we're not, if we're not already. I, I do agree that this, it, it felt different. I actually, you know, I watched Fox on election night because actually watching Fox is a much more revealing to wh where the shifts are going on than watching MSNBC mm. or CNN or any of these others. And without really saying it explicitly, unlike the Wall Street Journal in its editorial, there was a clear, like, DeSantis is the future, Trump is the past feeling to the coverage in a very sober way. I know people don't usually associate Fox News commentary or any cable news commentary with the word sober, but it did feel that way in a way that was quite striking and, and unexpected. I think unexpected for them as well. Yeah, and I, but I mean, I'd, I'd say this, we have to be careful, and I have to be careful necessarily looking at it as a positive thing. I mean, I, I recently had dinner with Bob Iger, the former CEO of Disney, and we were talking about the performance of Disney not under his watch in Florida after being attacked over, you know, the don't say gay bill about, you know, civil rights. And 
identity issues in Florida, which Ron DeSantis was the chief quarterback of all that. So it's not automatic. I don't want anybody to get the impression that say, oh, we're saved because DeSantis is, uh, you know, somehow the the rising star of Republicanism. You know, things have changed when dot, dot, dot. (laughs) (laughs) We'll take him. We'll take him. (laughs) But there was another, I think, point made that is vital and kind of fascinating that which is that because of what happened with hanging chads and the disputed 2000 election uh florida this has nothing to do with DeSantis per se has one of the most effective streamlined trustworthy vote counting processes of any state in the united states in a way that you know i sit around in new york there is now early voting but it's still taking us a very long time to tabulate i mean arizona is going to take a week to figure out who's voted for whom, Nevada, Pennsylvania seems to have gotten a little better, but it's actually a really good point, right? Florida, we should be able to count our votes in some timely fashion. And the fact that we're unable to is is still rather extraordinary. And yet, you know, here you have an example where that's the case. Well, I think it's interesting that you have a convergence of major investment in Florida's election system under a Republican governor. It kind of reminds you of only Nixon could go to China, like only an anti-communist, you know, fire-breathing, right-wing anti-communist could normalize with China or go to China. And maybe that is what has happened, is that there's so much, most of the doubt in election systems exists on the center right. And, And so those Republican governors who can shore up a credible system, invest in technology and others and do it. it it's, a, it's an opportunity that I think is good for the overall country because you do see an unbelievably archaic set of systems in some places. And also, you know, I, I changed my uh, voting registration from um, Washington, D.C. to Chestertown, Maryland, and I would go in and they give you a choice and you could vote either with a paper ballot or you could vote electronic. I said, I'll vote electronic. I, you know, I have no problem with this. But there were a good chunk of people that were early voters who said, oh, I don't trust those those electronic those machines. Those machines are bad. And people were coming in and doing the other. And so you do have this culture clash going on as we negotiate how we vote. It's also just like you know, aside from from the whole elections in the United States, there's that tactile feeling of like writing out your vote and putting it through or mailing it in that the electronic system doesn't have. But anyway, that aside, I wanted to bring something up about DeSantis in Florida, which is that, you know, he won by a whole lot. 20 points. Well, thank you so much. You know, over these past four years, we've seen major challenges for the people of our state, for the citizens of the United States, and above all, for the cause of freedom. We saw freedom in our very way of life in so many other jurisdictions in this country wither on the vine. Florida held the line. I've seen takes out there that they think that this has something to do with the fact that he didn't go all the way extreme on abortion. And of course, it was a huge midterm election for abortion. I wonder if you could give us a little bit of a state of play on that right now, because Zachary and I have been talking on the podcast about how things are going to shake out statewide after the Roe v. Wade rollback. Well, I I think, you know, there there was a line that the abortion decision and whether it was Lindsey Graham's, you know, attempts to sort of federalize a national level of, you know, an abortion allergy, if you will, throughout the system or looking at, you know, DeSantis held the line at 15 weeks. He stayed with that. He held a principle, whether people were debating on one side or another. One thing you can give him credit for, 
is he does something and he sort of sees through the political headwinds. And at the end of the day, it's there. But I think that what happened, the narrative was this, that, you know, I was talking to very leading top, 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 top people in the Democratic Party who told me that the Roe v. Wade, the Dobbs decision was a gift. Now, it's an odd way to frame something that you have so much anxiety uh, and animus towards, but that the Dobbs decision was a gift to the Democratic, like the Democratic outcome. And you saw that in some of the early races. And then the notion was, as you saw polling coming out, that that sort of faded or went down in priority as inflation, price of gas at the pump, other concerns, crime in particular, rose. And there was this belief that while it was still on the map, it was lower down. I think that was a mistake. And I think that to some degree, you know, DeSantis benefited on both sides of that in a way that Charlie Crist did not. I was surprised as well at how well Marco Rubio did against Val Demings, a former Orlando police chief, black woman, competent, capable. She was on uh, Biden's shortlist for vice president. So Florida was where the red wave happened. But I think it happened because they managed through some of these issues better than than some of their Republican colleagues did. But I do think that abortion mattered in this election. I also think inflation and crime mattered. There were a lot of things that mattered. But I, I think that we had a, a, a feeling that somehow if people don't have it top of mind and aren't talking about it, that somehow they've walked away from that as a primary issue for them. And I think that was a mistake, mistaken read of the electorate this time. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco. And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote. Nothing was linear. I had to work around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's the time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. but Hot labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) We we hear that. Political breakdown daily. Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters. With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily starting January 8th. History doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. That may be a Mark Twain quote, but it's just as true today as when he originally said it. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics is a podcast that compares and contrasts history to the current events of today. Host Bruce Carlson has recently done deep dives on fascinating topics like the fall of the Soviet Union, which sets the stage for today's geopolitics, the man who was in prison and still won a million votes for the presidency, and the mystery behind George Washington's involvement, or lack thereof, in the Bill of Rights. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics offers deep context to all these historic stories, especially those that you may think you know well, and is particularly adept at relating them to current events. So don't miss out. Listen to My History Can Beat Up Your Politics on all platforms. You know, there may be a sort of, I don't know what the word, like a euphoria 
based on the absence of worst case scenarios <laughs> where we've all become yeah. so accustomed to believing that the worst case scenarios are, are the most likely ones that when you have something approaching a normal election where people air their differences but are not voter intimidating, you know, there were, I guess, a few examples of uh, armed people looking suspiciously at, at drop boxes and early voting places. But for the most part, you just you didn't have that. I mean, that speaks to a larger social one, which is the temperature has become so intense that you 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 forget what it's like to have something approaching like normal divisiveness. Oh, I mean, I, let me just hear it. The other really good thing are all these election deniers who, when they lost the election, conceded their election. Yes. That's yes. the best thing, the number one thing. I, I, you know, I think we were all holding our breath. It's really stolen the ground, Zach, from President Trump coming back in two years and saying, you were all lied to. Y'all, you know, the guys, you know, the, you didn't lose it when you have a functioning system that even the election deniers accepted the results of. And that's happened, I think, pretty much in every case I've seen. I haven't seen anyone contest the outcome or process of yet. That's probably the healthiest element and difference of this, because it steals the possibility of Trump using that line on election denying as we approach 2024. I mean, there's also a little bit of the weirdest too of election deniers who then also won their elections and not conceded, but accepted the results that they won. You're simultaneously saying that the election system works in that instance as well. Right. You know, the it, I said this in the newsletter, the system only works if I win narrative only lasts for so long. So I hope that we're going to see all this on the way out. But Steve, I also wanted to ask you, you know, obviously we're still waiting to see the Senate and the House get settled. But so far, Biden has had a pretty good track record of getting legislation through along with Republican support. Do we see any reason for that to be changing going into the second two years or you think it's business as usual? Well, I mean, it's a it's a good question. I think, you know, he had say what you will at the end of the day, he still had control of both chambers and there was no way for the Republicans to fully succeed in a just say no to Biden campaign on everything, regardless of the solvency. I guess let's speculate for a moment that if they get a one seat, if they hold at even, then Joe Manchin's reign continues in the Senate. If they get an extra seat or an extra two seats, certainly strengthens Biden's hands on nominations, which have been very, very slow. So I think that's an important dimension. I worry about the debt limit issues ahead and that so many Republican House members have made this the dramatic moment that they want to take down the American ship and feel proud about it. And they have no idea how dangerous it is to play with the full faith and credit of the United States. And I'm just shocked and alarmed. But that's far, you know, there's some Democrats, I think it was reported by one of our semaphore reporters, Joseph Zabolas Roig who wrote that some Democrats now lament the thin margin the Republicans have and said if they'd gotten a big red wave, that they'd have far more and their predictably responsible Republicans would have been in a better place to prevent the debt limit from being squashed. So, you know, I think it's there. But I, I at the end of the day, if the Republicans, even with a few seats, hold that House, it's going to be harder for Joe Biden and the Biden team to be honest, 
and, and they're going to probably have a change of guard up there. I think we know Ron Klain is probably leaving the chief of staff. There'll probably be others. Hasn't been one to really play across the aisle much, and they're going to have to figure that out. And so the only way, only pathway they can succeed is an LBJ way. You twist arms, you dangle carrots, you use whatever you can to cajole and bully and seduce. And I think that unless they take that proactive attitude with Republicans, that uh, it's going to be hard. And remember that every deal that they do on the Republican side, there will be someone, I believe, on the progressive left that screams bloody murder and 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 thinks that it's a bad thing. And so it's very hard in this climate to work across the aisle like that. But I don't think they have any choice. So you've been the proverbial man about town in the district for a long while. And like anything else, you know, a lot of us relate to what goes on in Washington from afar. So we're, our impressions are sort of dictated <laughs> by stories you write, things you read. And so the impression is nobody works together, nobody talks, it's all it's all divided. The, the, the years of kind of clubby, we'll fight during the day if we're Democrat, Republican, but we'll have a drink at night or whatever the, the, the formulation thereof is, we'll, we'll both meet up at a Georgetown cocktail party and you know, work things out, that that's all gone. It's just a place of sort of rancor and indifference. People don't even live there anymore. Representatives fly in as quickly as possible to do whatever the business of the House and the Senate are, and then they fly out to spend time in their district because they don't want to be contaminated by the cesspool of Washington. And then you had COVID, so people weren't even there at all for much anyway. Is that true? Is that So like, what's the reality, the warp and woof? So it's 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 a patchwork. I think, I think 90% of Republicans and Democrats in the Congress do deals, meet privately with people on the other side of the aisle. They all have pet projects. They have a bridge. They want to save, you know, a a dog and cat care clinic. They want to, whatever it may be, whatever pet project they have, kids, education, you know, mental health, orphan drugs, whatever it is out there. There are pet projects that we rarely see in the media where every one of these people has reached out to someone on the other side of the aisle worked out. So that's a really great element of a hidden bipartisan bit of the DNA that's not of, of, often given service. On top of that, now there, there are those that are so stridently on the right or so stridently on the left that they're not engaged in that, but they're a very small minority. And then there are people who, like me, live in this town. I like a good cocktail party. I hang out at these dinner clubs. I embrace that. You know, name dropping is part of the kind of D.C. world and scene. I get that. That's how, that's how George Washington became president, you know, beer bashes. And, and so the politics, the engagement that goes on. And I can tell you, I um, recently had a uh, an event I was involved in that involved Senator Joe Manchin, also involved Senator Michael Bennett. Those two weren't necessarily on the friendliest of terms over their differences on the child tax care credit. But they have other issues now in the same party. We also had Senator Dan Sullivan. We had Senator Bill Cassidy, Louisiana, two Republicans that were involved. Senator Dan Sullivan, who many people look at like they look at Manchin as a someone who knows the oil and energy world well, said something striking. And I'm going to quote it, even though it was sort of an off the record. Thing. I think I have his permission where he said, you know, we have a national epidemic in loneliness right now. If you look at young women and the suicide rates in this country, I had no idea that Dan Sullivan, the Republican senator from Alaska, was working with Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General in the Biden White House, on key questions of youth and loneliness. And I got to tell you that 
he's so many Democrats love him. And I and I basically I, I said to him, I joked and I said, hey, if you and Michael Bennett are in the elevator together in the Senate and the senators on the elevator, what do you talk about? And and they said, well, it's kind of silent. But he says, I like being in the elevator with Sheldon Whitehouse. <laughs> and I was stunned by that because Sheldon Whitehouse is someone who has been writing a lot about the nefarious influence of big money, particularly big oil money in American politics. And I thought, and I said so to, you know, Senator Sullivan. So I said, so are you, you know, a puppet of, you know, big dark money and forces? And he says, probably, but I still like Sheldon. And I saw Sheldon Whitehouse the next day and I asked him for dance. These two guys love each other. They love hanging out together. They, they do it. It's just the public doesn't see it. And I can tell you, I've got hundreds and hundreds of cases where I've seen that same kind of energy. I host something called the Calorama Conversations at the Ambassador of France's private residence. And I get always bipartisan members, senators, House members, members of the administration. I did this during the Trump administration, would have um, officials come from the Trump administration with the public. Now, these are off the record. The public doesn't see them. But what you have is a level of civil engagement and discussion that's very constructive when it comes to policy issues. And I have seen it over and over and over again. And I wish that story were out more because that is the that is a reality in addition to some of the negatives, Zach, that you mentioned, which erodes some of that. But on the whole, there's a quite a bit of promise, I think, in the human dimension of knowing someone across the aisle and having empathy and understanding where they're where they're coming from. Man, you have a good life. I mean, you know, cocktail parties in Calorama, <laughs> ambassadors, center. I mean, we we're we're Emma and I we're, no, we're and some people some people hate it and they look at me as a part of the problem in Washington. And I'm sorry for that. You may you may totally be part of the problem, but we're yeah. we're showing up in like a week <laughs> on your doorstep yeah. uh, and you're you're taking us out of <laughs> the town, right? Emma, Emma, you coordinate the travel. We'll be all right, yeah. Done. <laughs> so, Steve, you are at a new publication called Semaphore. What is your official title? I'm editor. I'm founding editor at large of Semaphore. Founding editor at large, and I know that you have a newsletter there that I'm subscribed to, and it's great. So, what's interesting about Semaphore is that they're doing coverage differently in the actual format of the article. Yes, I'm glad you've noticed. Yeah, it's cool. I like. I would love for you to explain that a little bit. Yeah, and maybe what the, some other things that you guys are up to. Well, look, Axios was brilliant. I think Axios was a brilliant creating a smart brevity format for changing the way reported articles work. And they found ways to kind of get the nugget of news and deal with it smart form. But that doesn't work for everyone. And in our case... I think there, and I people may be offended by what I'm about get, about going to say. We saw a kind of market opportunity in the crisis in trust in news, right? And also a socially responsible approach to say, how does the media responsibly address the fact that so few people trust the news? And this is true on the right and the left. Well, we thought let's be transparent about it. That we believe that writers, whether it's Steve Clements or Zach Carabell come with baggage, come with bias. We try to be objective. We try to sell the shtick that we're objectively distant. I sell the shtick that I talk to people on both sides of the aisle, and I do. We still bring a set of issues to this. So we created a format that starts with the news or the scoop, which is pretty indisputable. It's sort of the facts of exactly what happened. And then we ask the writer, uh, of which we now have about, I think, 40 journalists on staff in a very short order, some of the best journalists in the country, who share his or her perspective on that news. Then we build in a disagreement. We go out and find a 
uh, someone who does not see it the same way. And we put that disagreement uh, in, in that as well so that people get reacquainted with the fact that critical thinking and critical analysis and seeing different perspectives is actually a healthy thing. And where it's relevant, whether it's a regional perspective from different perspectives in the United States, or more importantly, because I think we wrongly divorce ourselves from the importance of what's going on in the world, we bring in an international perspective to that. And that constitutes, in most cases, the semaphore, and we're very, very proud of it. And it's taken off like crazy. So you know, I do the principles newsletter, which is the politics and policy newsletter in Washington, D.C. I have a team of incredible people who do this. Morgan Chalfant, ben, Benji Serlin, who was Chuck Todd's political director, Kadia Goba, who used to be at BuzzFeed, Shelby Talcott, who was at the Daily Caller, Joseph Zabalos Roig. These are all extraordinary folks. And then we've got the flagship. We've got a business editor, you know, business vertical, a tech vertical. And as we kind of do all of this, the semaphore will be the centerpiece for our, I was just telling you what, for our SEMA fans. <laughs> <laughs> See, if I'm going to tell you, since I am a SEMA fan, uh, truly and authentically, I'm going to tell you one other thing that I like about Semaphore, which is that there's humor mm. in the graphics and the newsletters and the, in the, oh, yes. Thank you. Be- because this is the thing. I, I read a lot of conservative writers. I read a lot of liberal writers. And I have to say that by and large, the conservative coverage is way funnier and uh, I just I love to see a news publication that's coming up that has humor in it because, you know, why not? So on Semaphore, just again, part of the uh, letting us know about this new rather exciting venture. There's not usually a lot of new exciting ventures. And in media land, it's usually, you know, sad stories of <laughs> storied franchises fading. So this is the other side of that. Has, has the mission shifted from the initial, like, we're going to focus on the world at large, the English-speaking outside the United States world, and become a little more general audience, whether it's in the United States or abroad? Well, I don't know if it's been a mission shift. I think we have different audiences. And so the thing I'm very proud of is a kind of avant-garde decision, really, that our we have we have a out of produced out of London by the former um, global editor of The Atlantic, Prashant Rao. He and his team produce our largest global newsletter right now called Flagship. That is for a general, globally engaged, you know, let's take stock of everything happening in the world perspective. But our first kind of focused regional perspective in which we want to not just have Americans learning about this continent, but also have an organic, authentic audience from that continent is our Africa platform. That is, we have Semaphore Africa, which is launched. We're doing a huge conference in December in Washington, D.C. on the edges of the U.S. Africa Leaders Summit. Yinka uh, Adagoke, who was used to be head of Quartz Africa, is our editor of that and has a team. And it gives us kind of an opportunity to compete with the New York Times in Africa, which doesn't have a lot of resources in Africa. We may be having more there than they do. So I think there, there's that. And it allows people who might sit in different pods. So if you're sitting in New York and you want to go, may not be, you know, a uh, uh, following Africa as intensely as other topics out there as business, tech, finance, Hollywood, whatever it may be. But we've got that there and we will eventually expand as well to these different places. Now, the politics and policy vertical principles, I should tell people it's principals, not to be confused with principles, which anyone knowing me uh, that that is apt. Um, But I, I think that the focus there is I want to have a general lay audience that wants to try and understand what's going on in this town and why, to have both the opportunity that to, to understand so that it's, we don't lose them in the in the 
language, but at the same time, we're not dumbing it down or the product. We're giving them a layer deeper than most other publications out there about why something happened. Why Build Back Better blew up? We would have had the story as I gave it to the Hill before. Or why the uh, Inflation Reduction Act came out despite you know, the the at that moment you had various senators and Democratic Party calling Senator Manchin duplicitous, moving the goal. There's no chance in hell of working on. It. I had the story on. So those kinds of things will be part of what we're doing, and we find that there is a national audience for that that's very very interested. Now, the English speaking dimension of it is something I think we'll wrestle with as we get scale and size and stabilize. We're not going to be operating in. Uh, foreign languages yet, but we do want foreign audiences. And we're going to have to tackle that when we have greater capacity. Because I do, I would like us to operate in other languages. It's just not in the cards for us right now. Well, good luck. We'll at least pay attention. We may not eagerly pay attention. (laughs) Well, I I tell anybody, I said, you don't have to read it every day, but please open it. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Anyone who's worked on a newsletter knows that that is true. All right. Good luck. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thanks for being part of the Progress Network and keep, keep at it. My pleasure. I love it. I love the Progress Network. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Steve. Well, we had an election yesterday and uh, it was a good day, I think, for democracy. And I think it was a good day for America. Our democracy has been tested in recent years, but uh, with their votes, uh, the American people have spoken and proven once again that democracy is who we are. The states across the country uh, saw record voter turnout. And the heart and soul of our democracy, the voters, the poll workers, the election officials, uh, they uh, did their job uh, and they fulfilled their duty. And apparently without much uh, interference at all, without any interference, it looks like. And that's a testament, I think, to the American people. Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you and work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy, as reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts. So, Emma, I love that little bit in there, the kind of slight door crack on the continued social realities of Washington. I mean, it used to be that everybody was kind of aware there was the public face of Washington, and then there was the private reality of Washington, and the private reality Mm -hmm. was a lot more fun uh, and a lot less extreme and a lot more clubby. 
think a lot of people over the past 20 years have reacted against the clubbiness, you know, some of the rise, not just of, of Trump and the current Republican Party, but, but of progressives and the Democratic Party has been a reaction against the elite clubbiness of D.C. You know, the idea that you get to go to the Georgetown parties and everybody casts off their clothes. We, we talked a little bit about that with Eric Swalwell and Jeff Collier a little while back on the on the show and the degree to which there's like the performative aspect, right? Swalwell told that great story of even during the uh, the heatedness of the impeachment hearings, he ran into Ted Cruz in the bathroom and <laughs> Cruz was like, hey, you're doing a great job. And the, like, you know, the idea of that being such an odd, odd optic, you know, and then they go back out and it's MMA fighting. And Steve has been someone who's been sort of deeply immersed in that world. And as he points out, some people think that's part of the problem and some people think that's part of the solution. But it, we, we do forget that all these things are still, at the end of the day, composed by real human beings who, you know, eat, drink, cry, get married, get sad. <laughs> it's not just stump speeches sitting together in a room. I guess the idea is to find the middle ground, right? The idea was, the, the image was coming to my mind as you were speaking that like there was this like really great party and then the party got out of hand and a bunch of people gate crashed it and just like trashed it, you know? And then we went too far in the direction of like completely trashing the party. Now we want to get the party started again, but we don't <laughs> want it to get as out of hand as it was uh, way back when. That's that's what came to my mind. <laughs> that's I mean, that's perfect. And of course, human ability to maintain equilibrium is uh, observably limited. Yeah. I also, you know, I liked Steve's reference to not only of like the human element of the thing, but the fact that there are these issues that don't get a lot of play that are actually bipartisan issues. Like he mentioned loneliness in women. I remember when I started working for the Progress Network, where I was saying, you know, we're bipartisan, we're nonpartisan. This is not a, a left thing or a right thing. And people were asking me like, well, what are you going to talk about? Like, are there really issues like that? And I was like, I guess we're going to find out. <laughs> and there are, you know, there really are. It's just not the ones that get a lot of play. What are you going to do with your, how are you <laughs> going to fill the airtime if you're not talking about all the, you know, nitty gritty crises that are besetting us? Well, it's poignant because it's like, that's what people know. So if you haven't given them something else to know, then of course it's hard for them to come up with topics in their mind like loneliness. But there are lots of things out there that, that people are really doing. Another thing I also wanted to talk about was the mention of Adam Frisch, which they're going to have to do a recount, right? Because he's 64 votes ahead. That's the one. Yeah. And of course, by the time people are listening to this, the outcome of that may be certain. So we're we're simply reflecting on an incredibly narrow race, just like the, the Georgia Senate race will head to a runoff. By the way, one funny aspect of that is that the libertarian candidate who ran in Georgia, Chase Oliver, Apparently, one of his motivations, which he wrote about in running, was to force Georgia voters to end this system, which only Georgia has, mm. of if you don't get 50%, even if you've won, you, you the two top candidates go to a runoff. Most No other state has that. And then he purposely designed a campaign to almost <laughs> split the difference exactly between the left and the right. So he's an outspoken gay man, so he put that there. And he's also unequivocally pro-Second Amendment, you know, gun rights without limitation. Okay. And one of his campaign slogans was gay and armed. And he got like 2% of the vote. I mean, he, and apparently he got like 1% <laughs> of that was people on the left and 1% was people on the right because he thinks it's a ridiculous system. And because his 2% might be the reason why they're going to head to a runoff, he thought this might get Georgia voters to finally move beyond 
that. Okay, so we're about to find out if this guy is going to become a you know Georgia hero or the target of a lot of ire in Georgia, or or maybe both. And um, but I had no idea about that. That's really interesting. Part of the reason why I brought that race up is because NPR had this great article. It was a list of all the races that had been decided by like very small amounts of votes in the last 20 or 30 years. And there were quite a few of them. And some of them are really down to one vote, which I just love as a reminder of like, we have probably historic turnout. Like we talked about last episode, that was expected. We're still waiting for final numbers, but it's probably going to be historic, historically high. Right. And if it's not surpassing 2018, I mean, we'll be at around the levels that we were last at again in the 1950s into the early 1960s. Mm-hmm. And it's really like you look at these races that are could really decide things nationwide as well. <laughs> you know, 100 votes is not a lot of votes. Like you really, really, your vote counts more than, um, than you think. There was a silly movie a bunch of years ago. I think it was called Swing Vote. And it, the, apparently the presidential election was exactly tied and, and it was coming down to this one guy. And it's the guy from Georgia who's gay yeah, and armed. Exactly. <laughs> his, his, his vote at the end. Apparently it was actually, it was armed and gay. I don't want listeners to feel like I'm misrepresenting his position. So, oh, okay. You know, armed and, and, that, gay. and that Thank make, you for that clarifying. That makes all, all the difference, apparently. Huge. Huge. But I, I, I did feel, and I think a lot of us felt, on multiple sides of the spectrum, a degree of relief that we were able to actually have an election that did not seem entirely dictated by hyperbolic hysteria. That's what Steve was talking about with the anger tainment, right? Like people just kind of want the roller coaster to stop or like they want to get off the roller coaster, you know? And it's what we've been talking about on the podcast as well, that at the end of the day, people want politicians that are going to do things and not just whip them up into a frenzy. It's the same reason why that people are tired of the media too. They're like, give me information. Stop like whipping me up into a frenzy for no reason not feeling that anymore. And that reminds me, we do want to put out a call to anyone listening. We're, we're going to try to crowdsource this. We are in search of an alternate word to doom scrolling, meaning what's the opposite of doom scrolling? And we've been talking about a word that we could come up with. So if anybody has an idea for a word that is the opposite of doom scrolling, which of course is a little progress networky, but I was thinking we could do, you know, hope surfing <laughs> or hope clicking or something like that. We'd like that there's got to be something on the other side. Uh-huh. I don't expect to answer this right now, but maybe people will have a, a moment of intense light bulb inspiration and decide yeah. to share it with us. Good news, grooving. Good clicking. Okay. Mm. Light, you know, something, something got to be out there. So other than midterms, anything we want to look at this week that is obscure but important? Yeah, so we're going to be short and sweet on the obscure but important uh, this week. What I wanted to mention was for the first time in a clinical trial, lab-grown blood was given to people. So obviously there's a big issue with having enough blood donations for folks, especially who need to do transfusions, dialysis, all sorts of things that require blood donations. And so we're trying to look into the future, into a world where we can literally just grow blood, whatever type that we want, and give it to people. And they've taken a step toward that. I'm assuming that it was given to people and and they didn't die. Well, they're, <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're tracking them. But <laughs> just, I just want to be really hyper clear here that, that people were given lab-grown blood and it worked. 
Well, they're tracking them. They're in clinical they're tracking trials. Them. But I, okay. I don't think that they were going to give them something that they thought. I'm sure this went through animals first. Um, I'm sure we'll also hear if somebody dies, but I, I don't expect that somebody will die. But in, in, the, in the wonderful world of borrowing from Monty Python, they're not dead yet. They're not dead yet. Okay. And it was very small amounts of the lab-grown blood. It was like a couple of spoonfuls. So it's not like you're just dumping a bunch of, you know, random stuff into somebody's body. Okay. Good to know on all accounts. They seem positive about how this is going to go. Of course, even if it does go really, really well, it's expensive. It's one of those things where we're definitely at the first step of a long series of steps. But it's very, very interesting to think about, you know, for instance, just People might not know this. In Greece, if you go into the hospital and get surgery, like you require surgery, you or somebody else has to give a blood donation because there's not enough people here who donate blood. There's always a shortage of blood. So really far down the road, but one day to have something where, yeah, just knock a few more packets up of O or of AB or whatever we want. Amazing. Absolutely. And a reminder too, which, which we try to do, but we don't pay enough attention to, yeah, to cool, good things happening to people, inventing things, finding solutions. A lot of it is technology, not all of it's technology. We talk about a lot of other things here. And we should spend more time looking at such things. Such things should be less obscure. Even if they fail too, right? That's the other thing is that I think there's a lot of people don't want to pay attention to, especially these sort of sciencey, techie stuff that are in their beginning phases because they very well might fail. Right. And people view that as a disappointment, but it's all part of the process. Right. I mean, you need to experiment and fail. Mm-hmm. So thank you all for listening. We're going to take a Thanksgiving break. We'll be back the week after with some other interviews and non-election news. And here's to a good holiday. Thanks, Zachary. And happy Thanksgiving to everyone. What Could Go Right is produced by Andrew Steven. Our editor is Jordan Aaron. Executive produced by Jeff Umbro and the Pugglomerate. To find out more about What Could Go Right, The Progress Network, or to sign up for the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org.